Support for Need to Know comes from the Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. Learn more at Carnegie.org. Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Wilson Center, a podcast for policymakers available to everyone. Always informative, nonpartisan, and relevant, we go beyond the headlines to understand the trend lines in foreign policy. Welcome back to the Need to Know podcast. Really happy today to have as a guest on our show, John Furling, who is an author and historian. Uh, many of you, I'm sure, have read his books, Adams versus Jefferson, Independence uh, is a recent book. And he also has a book coming out in May, which will be Winning Independence, The Decisive Years of the Revolutionary War. And so we're looking forward to that in May. John Furling, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. With all of the events of the last couple of weeks, uh, or the last four years, or the last 10 years, the last 20 years, I think uh, we keep hearing politics is broken, it's worse than it's ever been. When it comes to the, the view of history, the context of history, for people who listen to this show, a lot of policymakers and congressional staffers who had to endure uh, these events of the last few weeks, when we look at the partisanship that we're experiencing now, is it like anything that we've really experienced in our history before? Uh, well, absolutely. I, I think the decade of the 1790s was a particularly uh, passionate and, and tempestuous uh, decade. It, it, uh, it didn't involve uh, any impeachments, but uh, certainly there was a great deal of, of rancor and bitterness uh, in in. Uh, 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 throughout the decade, most of it in the in the press and in the Congress. Sometimes members of the Congress actually fought one another on the on the floor of the Congress, and it all built up to the to the election of 1800, uh, which which uh, turned out to be a, a volatile election. And I think what what happened in the uh, in the 1790s, un, unlike today, was that this was the start of everything. They were shaping the new, the new national government that had just been created by the Constitutional Convention, uh, and uh, uh, there were there were two sides struggling. One one side uh, to to make the national government a fairly weak government, the other to make it a stronger. Uh, government. There were all, all kinds of collision points uh, that occurred during that that time, and and I think both sides understood that it, it was that whatever shape the the national government took in the 1790s, it was going to be extremely difficult to change that. Uh, so that 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 added an extra uh, uh, aspect to the struggle in in the uh, in the 1790s, and then. Uh, the French Revolution begins really just at the very, almost the very moment, very instant that Washington is inaugurated in uh, the spring of, of 1789 as our president. And while it was supported by almost all Americans immediately, it turns very radical and very bloody by 1792. And by 1793, France is at war with Great Britain and the country is, is divided between those who, who not only supported the, the French Revolution and the, the democratic 
changes and social changes that, that were unleashed by the, the French Revolution uh, and those who, who opposed those, those changes, and um, also uh, by those who hoped that Great Britain would be defeated. And on the other hand, the, their counterparts were those who, who I think really wanted to model the United States socially and, and politically to a considerable degree on the British uh, model. And uh, they were fearful that, that Great Britain would be defeated. So, so all of these things kind of mesh in the 1790s and, and make it uh, a time of e extreme partisanship between the Federalist Party, uh, which is, is the party of John Adams with, with Alexander Hamilton kind of in the shadows in the background, really pulling a lot of the, a lot of the strings. And on the other hand, uh, what was originally called the Republican Party, and then it, toward the end of the decade began to be called the Democratic Republican Party. I'm just going to call it the Republican Party in our conversation today. And that was the party that was pretty clearly led by, by Thomas Jefferson with, with James Madison uh, alongside him. And Aaron Burr, was, who, who we'll talk about later on, I'm sure, uh, was, was a major... Uh, player in the in the party too. So one thing I I went back and reread Adams versus Jefferson recently because there's been so much in the media about the election of 1800 and the role of the vice president in the electoral college count. Uh, and one thing that you point out in Adams versus Jefferson is that people in the 1790s were cognizant of the fact that they were setting precedents. And that is not something I think that we think about a lot of times that, you know, they weren't just living through history like we are today, but they were very much aware of the fact that what they did in the first formative years of the United States was going to set a precedent. Yeah, I, absolutely. I, I think no one was more, more uh, aware of that than Washington and uh, things that he did. Uh, sometimes angered those on the the other side because they they didn't like the precedent that he was was setting. But but uh, one precedent that did come out of the 1790s that that was important until midway through the almost midway through the 20th century was that Washington stepped down after two terms, and that established the tradition until Franklin Roosevelt came along that no one would seek a, a third elected term. As uh, as as, pres as president, uh, so and I I think people in all generations are are always aware of uh, of precedents and in fact in just the last couple of days with all of the talk about uh, impeachment uh, I, I've heard several people on several political leaders uh, uh, talk about uh, the the precedent uh, we we must must establish a a precedent of, of not not uh, permitting the uh, the riot that allegedly was instigated by President Trump to go uh, uh, un, uh, unheeded and, and whatever. You must take action and set that precedent for future generations. But I, I think the 1790s, because it was the beginning, was, people were, were far more cognizant uh, of that than, than is the case today. If, if anything, today, I think now people talk about uh, 
uh, not following precedent. I mean, people people have have talked about uh, Trump not attending, uh, un- unlike almost all of his predecessors, not attending the inauguration next week, and that that would be a a bad precedent to set. Uh, some people have said. Uh, and but John Adams did not attend Jefferson's inauguration, and at a time where it would have been precedent setting uh, for sure, uh, he was on the 4 a.m. stage out of town, uh, <laughs> as I recall you writing. I don't know if Trump will catch a 4 a.m. stagecoach or not, but but uh, yeah, I think and and there was some criticism of Adams, not not as much as as there probably will be of of uh, Trump today but but some newspapers at the time criticized him for for not attending but this was all new this was the first time that that uh, a sitting president had been uh had, had failed to win re-election and had to, and was being turned out of office washington had left on his own volition and uh, after his his second term so this this was something uh, new on on adams's uh, part and, and we're still debating why Adams uh, did that. I and I, I think there are probably many many factors in in Adams's decision. He was a very bitter loser, just as as uh, Trump was. So he, he he wasn't publicly as vocal about it. And um, but I think he he just wanted to get home and. Uh, his wife had left a month earlier. He wanted to be with her. He wanted to get out of Washington. He was, he was really pretty friendless in Washington. I, I think Harry Truman later on said, "If you want a friend in Washington, get a dog," <laughs> and that would have been good advice for John Adams because I don't think he had uh, any real close friends uh, in Washington. There's an interesting counterfactual of what if John Adams had had Twitter. Uh, what would he have? <laughs> well, that's that's true. He, but he, uh, he, he kind of disappeared from the scene after the election, uh, to, which is not unlike Trump. I mean, we haven't seen very much of of Trump. There were a couple of rallies uh, uh, a few weeks ago, but I think that was because of the unusual situation of the runoff election in in Georgia. But with those exceptions, and I think his trip down to to the border uh, this week, we haven't really seen a great deal of Trump, and that was pretty much true of of Adams. He 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 uh, went out for a walk every morning down Pennsylvania Avenue, but but other than that, he he didn't say anything and and didn't make any formal appearances. Just to be clear on the history, Adams came in third in the electoral college count. Right, it was between really the the race as it shaped up was between Jefferson and Burr and Adams as the sitting president, really, I mean, he wasn't even really part of the consideration when it really came down to it. It was down between Jefferson and Burr. That's, that's right. And, uh, you know, in, in those days, uh, the elections were different than they are now because of the original constitution. They were different in the sense that the, each elector was to cast two votes for president. Uh, and uh, no one was designated as a vice presidential candidate, although when, when the Republicans nominated Jefferson and Burr, they did stipulate that Jefferson was the, was the party's first choice. Uh, 
uh, to to be president. And, and as it turned out, uh, it, it really became a three-person race, Jefferson and Burr and Charles Coatsworth Pinckney, who was the second uh, Federalist uh, nominee. He's, he was from South Carolina, and in the end, everything boiled down to to, to uh, what South Carolina did. And um, uh, for a time, it, it looked as though, I mean, he, he certainly um, um, might have wound up as the vice president rather than, than Byrne uh, in this election. But Adams was pretty much finished really early on, uh, because in, in those days, unlike today, where we have uh, an elect, the election on the Tuesday after the first Monday in November, the, uh, the the voting was, was started in April and continued into uh, November, so it just kind of chugged along over several months. and And New York actually uh, had the election uh, in April, and and I I say that they weren't they weren't really voting for president when I say they they had the election. But what happened was. That in um, in in the election of 1800, uh, the the presidential electors were chosen by state legislatures in 11 of the 16 states, but they were chosen by a popular vote in the other uh, other five votes. And in New York, uh, the in April, the legislature was elected, and the Republicans gained control. Of the legislature, the Adams had carried New York and won all of New York's electoral votes in 1796. But when the Republicans gained control of the of the New York legislature in the April election, I mean that guaranteed that Jefferson was going to get all of those those votes. And even Abigail Adams uh, said in a letter that spring when she heard the results in New York. It's it's all over and and um, John doesn't have a chance. She put it a little more formally than that, but that's what it boiled down to. So let's turn to Jefferson's role then as a sitting vice president for John Adams, presiding over the Senate. We've seen this happen in a contested election. Also, I when I was reading Adams versus Jefferson again, there was a there was a irregularity in Georgia in, in 1800 that uh, Jefferson kind of heard the objection and kind of moved right on through it. There's been a lot of comparisons to this election of 1800 with the situation that Mike Pence has been in. But Mike Pence has to deal with the Electoral Count Act, which Jefferson did not. And there's some changes in the constitutional counting uh, and how, how it all works out. So explain to us, I guess, the comparisons when you hear people comparing things to the 1800 election. What do you think of? Well, um, I, I mean, I, I guess I, I think of the uh, uh, the vitriol and the campaigning. Uh, it was it, both of the parties largely uh, ran negative ads. Or they didn't run ads, but they they used uh, essayists in the newspaper who argued in a, a negative fashion. Fashion that is rather, rather than then trumpeting what their party stood for, uh, they they attacked the uh, the other candidates. So the Republicans uh, uh, labeled Adams uh, a monarchist, and and uh, Jefferson was 
was labeled as an atheist and uh, sort of a dreamer who more of a philosopher who I think one one uh, federalist said he might be a good college president, but he wouldn't be a good president of the United States. Uh, so and and certainly we we saw a lot of that that kind of campaigning in uh, in this election. And um, uh, I think that that was that was maybe the the greatest uh, uh, similarity in the in the two. Although uh, because there there were threats to to contest the electoral votes uh, that could have. I mean, I, I remember reading an article in the Atlantic uh, Monthly Magazine that predicted that. Uh, there uh, several months before all this happened that there would be a challenge and the and the election might be thrown into the House of Representatives and it could have been thrown in depending on you know had had there been a change in in a, a couple of two or three different states in that, that had close elections had Trump won those elections it could have been thrown into the House of Representatives as as happened in 1800 but uh, that didn't happen. I find interesting. We haven't had a situation where it has gone to the House of Representatives, what, since 1824, since the John Quincy Adams, Jackson. Right. Yeah. So and America, so Americans are absolutely not used to having the House of Representatives decide a, an election like that. And it would probably cause quite a political crisis if you think about it. But yet here we are in the third election this country ever held. The House of Representatives is having to exercise this constitutional provision that was I, I, one of the points that you made in the book was that and I'm, I'm sorry, I keep going to this one book. I know you've written several, but this was just so interesting to me uh, is that, you know, the founders likely expected that we were going to have a lot of ties in our electoral count and a lot of close elections. And I think Americans just aren't really expecting that anymore. Yeah, I, I think when they when they created the electoral college, uh, as I mentioned earlier, each elector was to to vote for two two individuals as president, and there's uh, a good bit of evidence that the uh, the framers at the constitutional convention uh, foresaw the electors as kind of debating societies in each each state. Uh, uh, sort of judiciously debating who who were the best candidates and then voting and and with with so many different states and and so many different uh, votes out there with the, each elector voting twice uh, I think the people in the Constitutional Convention most of them thought very few uh, uh, elections would actually be clearly decided. Uh, uh, that uh, unless there was a, somebody who who was an iconic figure, which would almost uh, have to be a military hero, as Washington was, that uh, almost every election would go to the to the the House of Representatives. So the Congress would have an, an additional check, then, or at least an additional voice in uh, in choosing the chief executive. I should mention too. I when when you ask a moment ago about similarities, one thing that that didn't materialize, but but in the in uh, the wake of what happened uh, last Wednesday, January sixth, 
um, it, it could have happened when when the issue went to the House of Representatives, uh, the House cast it took 36 ballots before they finally came to a choice and, and Jefferson was voted president over over Burr. And so th this stretched from Wednesday of one week till Tuesday of the next week. And it got more and more heated as it, as it went along. And there were stories that um, um, a militia would be moved, would be marching down from the northern states to put Burr in office. And uh, uh, James Monroe was governor of uh, Virginia at the time, and he contacted Thomas McKean, who was the governor of Pennsylvania at the time. Both were Republicans, and they agreed that uh, if something like that happened, they would marshal their forces. Uh, those two states uh, to to see that Jefferson, uh, who clearly won the, the the most votes or was a, the most popular choice, I should say, uh, was was inaugurated. And Monroe in Virginia even feared that the uh, the, uh, the 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 that Adams might use the federal army to come into Virginia and seize the the federal arsenals. Uh, in Virginia, so Jeff uh, Monroe rather uh, had the had the Virginia militia guard the arsenals to see that the weapons stayed in the hands of the Virginians, just in case they 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 were uh, needed to be used. But fortunately, uh, nothing like that happened, and there was no no uh, invasion of the the capital. Between the election and in November or in December, when people actually knew knew the outcome of the election, and in in February when the final decision was made, um, the two two of the new federal buildings, I think it was the uh, the War Department and uh, might have been the Treasury. I can't remember which which other federal building, but anyway, two of them burned. And so there were lots of conspiracy theories floating around uh, that the, these fires were set by by one side or the or the other. So uh, so I think you know those kinds of things happen when you've got a volatile situation, just as we've had recently, and and as they had in 1800. There is nothing new under the sun, is there? <laughs> Human nature doesn't change that much, I don't think. So tell us about the book that you've got coming up. It sounds pretty interesting. Yeah, it's a book called Winning Independence, uh, The Decisive Years of the Revolutionary War. And uh, I wrote a book that came out in 2011 titled Independence that dealt with the, um, the, the struggle to declare independence and why it, why it finally was declared in July 1776 instead of, instead of earlier. And in, and in some respects, this is a, is a sequel to that. The book deals with the period between uh, Burgoyne's uh, surrender at Saratoga in October of 1777 and Yorktown in, in October of... Uh, 1781, when independence was was finally uh, secured, and it's a, it's a dramatic time period because w when 
following Saratoga, I think almost everybody thought the war was over. Uh, the British had lost a huge army. France allied with the United States and was sending military assistance. And even a great many people in, in England thought the war was, was unwinnable at that point. Uh, but the British persisted, and they adopted a new strategy, a southern strategy. The war soon became deadlocked. And as I write in my new book, uh, uh, if there had been Las Vegas odds makers in January 1781, I think they would have probably given better odds that Britain uh, would come out of this better than, than America and that the Americans probably would not gain independence, that a great many people felt uh, uh, that um, th this war was going to end in a stalemate and that there would be a European peace conference, France would pull out, and uh, the U.S., if, if it was independent at all, it would be uh, a United States of only about 10 states. Hmm and uh, would have been surrounded completely by Great Britain, British territories from Canada through Trans-Appalachia down to the south and Florida and in the Caribbean. Mm. And uh, uh, the U.S. Would, would hardly have had a rosy future. So anyway, that's, that's what the, yeah. the book deals with, the military struggle during that four-year period. And one final question for you, since we have a lot of congressional staff in our audience, and certainly the last couple of weeks have been tough for them, I just want to give you an opportunity as a historian and uh, somebody who's dealt with these American politics issue. Is there anything that you want to say to a congressional staffer on the importance of knowing this history or anything at all uh, that you'd like to say? Well, one one thing I do want to, to say to them is I appreciate their work and I I uh, uh, certainly uh, uh, have, have uh, anguished over what they went through on, uh, on January the 6th, and I, I hope that they'll be safe uh, on Inauguration Day and, and in the period that follows and that we never have anything uh, like, like this again. But, I, but beyond that, as a historian, I, I think we, we can learn from the past and we can can learn the mistakes that were made in the past and hopefully uh, try to avoid some of those mistakes. And, but e even, even if, we, if the past is always somewhat different than today and always has, of course, a different cast of characters, uh, we, we can nevertheless, I think, um, uh, put our present time in some context by, by uh, understanding uh, the past. And in this particular case, I think uh, we can understand that, uh, that, that while things in 2021 and the election of 2020 aren't exactly, uh, they don't exactly parallel uh, 1800, the election of 1800 and the 1790s, uh, uh, by understanding the 1790s, it might make it a little, little easier to understand some of the things that are going on today. Well, John Furling, historian, author, really happy to have you on. Make sure those that are listening, go check out his books. He's got one coming up called Winning Independence. 
the decisive years of the Revolutionary War. Uh, also check out Independence, Jefferson and Hamilton, Adams versus Jefferson, and several others uh, that are out there as well. I uh, really appreciate talking to you, Professor Furling. Well, thank you for hanging with me, Adam. I've enjoyed it.